Everybody, how you doing? A very special day today. We wanted to get very specific on a very well-known UFO flap. We're talking about the Phoenix Lights. And uh, Jason, we've got Dr. Lynn Kitai in the show today. She's quite the wealth of knowledge. She uh, knows a lot on the Phoenix Lights, for sure. She's one of the leading experts on it. And I'm looking forward to talking with her, for sure. Yeah, and in our quest to find more science-minded and science-trained people to really give their opinions on this stuff, I mean, she's a medical doctor. She's a physician who had an experience. She's the only lady that ever got 35 mil footage. And, you know, the images you see in the paper, and that those were all hers. She went through it herself, captured it, and it changed her entire life. And how could it not? So today we're super excited to interview her. Uh, we're going to let her have the floor and just tell us everything she needs to tell. I don't know how much she can fit in an hour, but... Uh, today, we're going to learn about the Phoenix Lights on uh, another great episode of UAP Studies Podcast. Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of UAP Studies Podcast. I am Louis Borges. Joining me as always, my good friend and illustrious co-host, Jason Gilmet. How are you, man? I'm doing good. It's been a it's been a heck of a week, but you know what? This is going to be a great episode. I've been looking forward to this all week and uh, looking forward to uh, hearing more about uh, uh, Dr. Lynn Kitai. I pronounced that correctly. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, talking with her a bit about the Phoenix, era, uh, Phoenix Lights and, uh, yeah, discovering more about it. Yeah. And so we're super excited because, you know, we're more science minded than kind of fringe or, you know, outer minded, I would say. And whenever you have somebody who's a trained scientist, a doctor, I mean, I was a med student and I decided to be an entrepreneur because to be a cardiologist would have been damn near 13 years of schooling for me. So these are people that have a high level of intellect, the ability to retain information, record it correctly. Um, and so when you have somebody like that who has an experience, and then shifts their entire life from being a physician to, I want to figure out what's going on and help other people understand that. That's respect worthy for sure. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, Dr. Lynn has been on over 100 TV and radio programs. She's an internationally acclaimed uh, physician and health educator. Uh, she's the author of Phoenix Lights, A Skeptic's Discovery, That We Are Not Alone. And uh, today she's going to inform us about the whole Phoenix Lights. In fact, uh, there's a lot of things people don't know. And uh, she's going to come on the show and uh, and uh, enlighten us all. So with very warm welcome, Dr. Lynn Kitai, welcome to the show. It is my supreme pleasure to be with you guys, uh, Louis and Jason and your audience, um, particularly since I had no interest or knowledge in this topic at all. I knew nothing about this topic before my husband, who's also a physician and a healthy skeptic, one must be open when you're a physician for whoever walks through the door had a very close sighting to our home two years before the historic mass sighting uh, of March 13th, 1997, which has become the most witnessed, most documented, most important anomalous aerial mass sighting in modern history, if not all of history. And as you mentioned, Louis, um, I take this very seriously as a scientist. I come to this forum as a scientist to, uh, and I've tried my best to really document things as credibly and professionally and share them as possible, as well as a physician to let people know they're not crazy. Even though most anomalies can be explained, only a small percentage cannot. But just because we can't definitively define what these things are, it doesn't mean they're not real. 
we may just be looking on the AM dial for an FM frequency. So it's important that we get this topic out in the open and we address it, we accept it and study it so we can move forward and not only find out who's driving these things, but also move forward in our own evolution. And when someone has um, a paranormal experience, it's real to them, even though it might be able to be explained, if they don't share it with even just one person, and I always welcome people to uh, message me on Facebook, Phoenix Lights Network page on Facebook or Phoenix Lights Network website, one person, it's healing, it's cathartic. And certainly as an experiencer, up close and personal as we'll get to, I know how that feels. And of course, as an educator for over 50 years on the reality of vital health issues, I have a company, Health Education Learning Programs, that produces video and workbook curriculums on vital health issues for classrooms worldwide. Award-winning Discovery Education was distributing them for a couple decades. Um, how could I not share what I documented, particularly since it's on 35 millimeter? I documented these UAP on 35 millimeter, they cannot be explained or denied. They're in the negative by military or university optical experts. And there is so much more to this story because there's so much mis and disinformation out there. Even um, many of the facts that ufologists don't even know because I pushed my entire medical career aside for seven years searching for a logical source and meaning for what I witnessed and photographed. I've yet to find it 25 years later. And what I found was so mind boggling that I ended up with a 750 page journal seven years later that I didn't know what to do with. I did not want to come forward. And I really did stay anonymous. Only a handful of people knew um, what I had, which was very significant as I've learned. Um, But nonetheless, finally, after much soul searching, I did come forward in, in 2004 with the first edition of the book, The Phoenix Lights, A Skeptic's Discovery That We Are Not Alone. And now it's in its fourth print for anybody interested. Um, It it is offered on Amazon and and Barnes and Noble, but um, I uh, recommend the ebook because it has color pictures and live links that they can explore. I'm an educator, go go explore if you're interested in something. Um, But going back to, uh, you know, how it all began, if you want me to, to get into that, um, I can. Yeah. Like, and for those people that don't know about the Phoenix lights, maybe just broadly explain what it was, what happened, you know, what they look like and who saw it kind of thing. Oh yeah. We, we will definitely get to that. And if anybody's near a computer, um, a lot of this is a visual, um, the Phoenix lights network. If you just Google Phoenix lights network, it usually comes up first and go to the photo page. Cause I'm going to be referring to some of the photos, which are really, really important data. Um, not proof, but definite evidence of something anomalous that cannot be explained to this day. 1995. This was my first introduction. Again, had no interest or knowledge in the topic at all. And I don't believe in coincidence anymore. Um, Everything's for a reason. Okay. Uh, It happened to be the eve of my birthday. What an incredible gift, actually, in retrospect. We're, We're pretty high on a mountain in Paradise Valley. And our viewpoint overlooks the valley. They call it the Valley of the Sun. And some distance from us, 20 miles away, are two mountain ranges, South Mountain and a few miles back, the Australia Mountain Range. And in front of South Mountain is the airport. 
So we're very familiar with what planes look like and helicopters and streetlights and car lights and so forth. Again, it was the eve of my birthday. I'm in a bath in a room adjacent to our bedroom that has one wall that's a window. And anything that pops up out there, we get to see. And my husband happened to be standing by the window talking to my mother-in-law on the phone to wish me a happy birthday. And he was on several state and hospital medical boards. Nothing ever ruffled his feathers. And he sounded alarmed. He says, get over here quick. What the hell is that? I grabbed my towel, wringing wet, run to the window dripping and a little below us. And you have to, if you can get on that website photo page, which is a really unique collection of the 35 millimeter, you'll see the first picture shows that there is a car on the road. And I did that purposely because cars with lights reflect onto the road, very unlike the true unknowns that are self-contained, okay? Yeah. And there's skylights to the right of that car, which are significant because if you look up from those skylights on a house, you can see South Mountain and the Australia Mountain Range right there. Well, we'll get to that in a second. Um, as I'm looking a little below us, and we're kind of nestled in the mountain range, it's a, it's a no-fly zone. It's gated. There should be no one there. And it's a very treacherous desert landscape under these three orbs in a pyramid formation, one on top and two closely aligned underneath. Now, I immediately looked underneath because, again, nobody should be there. And it's very treacherous, you know, cacti and all that. Pitch black. And I'm looking at these three orbs and I'm thinking, whoa, I should get my camera, but I didn't want to miss anything. And you might hear that from other people out there that have had paranormal experience. You don't know how long it's going to last. So I try to take everything in mentally, the size, the shape, the color. They were about three to six feet each. They were, depending on how close they were, they were oval shaped, which is interesting. Now that we've learned that the Nimitz Navy pilots describe their tic-tac UFOs that they've been seeing as oval shaped or lozenge shaped. I don't know if it's the same phenomena, but nonetheless, they were oval shaped. And I call them an orb because the light did not extend outside the edge. It was self-contained and it was a uniform amber color throughout. Very soothing, very mesmerizing. Every other light out there glared. These did not. And I thought, if I don't get a picture of this, no one's going to believe it. So I go running to the closet. I collect sunsets. In fact, all these books behind me are, are sunsets that I collect. And I, I just kept a cheap Instamatic Canon camera in the closet and I go to grab it. My husband calls me back and I always go back to this sighting because I saw this up close and personal and they were just yards from our home. He says, one of them is disappearing. Get over here quick. And as we both watched the top orb without budget from the other two very closely aligned underneath starts to shrink very, very slowly, mechanically. It, it's really difficult to describe in logical terms, like a dimmer switch, like, mm -hmm. like there was an intelligent presence behind it, getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller till it was pea size. And then it disappeared, but it felt like it was still there. Where did it go? In fact, the only thing that popped into my mind, because we had two young boys at the time, we did watch the original Star Trek series with William Shatner and also uh, E.T. and Close Encounters. That was it. Okay, what popped into my mind was a Romulan cloaking device. I don't know if you remember that from Star Trek, but it yeah, kind of yeah. wavered before it cloaked. This did not. I really noted that. 
It, but it seemed like it was cloaking. At any rate, I jumped out on the balcony, got a quick picture of the two lower orbs. That's the second picture in the top row on the Phoenix Lights Network photo page. And immediately noticed an eerie silence as if time had stopped. It was just bizarre. And as intently as I was watching these two lower orbs, and I didn't share this with a soul until two years later after the mass sighting, it felt like something was watching me. It just did. And going through my mind at that exact moment, I was thinking, who are you? What are you? Do you know that I'm here? I'd love to meet you. The next thing I remember, the left bottom orb started to shrink, just like the top one did. And I quickly shot a picture of that. That was the only one that turned out at the time. But for me, it was confirmatory that we did see something unusual. I didn't know what it was, but I got a picture of it. One half disappeared and one still there. But I didn't even know who to show it to. I knew no one who was into the topic. I wondered for two years why we saw this. What kind of advanced technology was this? Right outside our bedroom window. Why my husband happened to see it with me. And interestingly, he didn't want to talk about it. Okay, He would get agitated when I brought it up. He was inside. I was outside. Um, something might have happened. I don't know. But everybody comes from a different background, from a different upbringing, from a different worldview. Some people can't deal with this topic. Some people don't want to. And that's okay. That's okay. Everyone in their own time. But now we have data to really look at. And I'm just quickly going to go through a couple things for you. Number one. Um, and if you go on the website, the 21-page report is there. A year after the mass sighting, which is in some of the footage is in the documentary, a year after the mass sighting, we had a huge sighting, 40 miles wide, 20 minutes of straight lines and mirror images. And the final thing was a giant um, pyramid in the same spot again. And we can tell because we have those skylights there. Okay, we're going to get to that. But, um, but at any rate, uh, Two years later, after the, a year after the mass sighting, three years after this close sighting, um, I had alerted people from Village Labs, which was a clearinghouse for many of the reports, that I had seen these lights through a fog. It was very muted, but they might come back a third night and alert the other videographers, which coincidentally were positioned north, south, east, and west, um, that they might come back, and they did with a vengeance. And now I had four videos taken at the same time, had been told that Dr. Bruce McAbee, uh, the uh, Navy optical physicist, very well respected, should see my data. So I finally got in touch with him. And as an afterthought, I stuck in. Now, by then, I went back to the strips and found that I had additional photos. So I I sent him the first and the last photo. He calls me up a couple of weeks later. He said, you, you're, you said your close sighting in 95 was a couple of minutes. I said, right. He said, are you sure? I said, that's what I remember. He said, ask your husband. I said, he won't talk about it. He said, you got to corroborate. And I sat my husband down. I said, you don't have to talk about it. How long was that close sighting in 95? He said, I don't know, two, three, four minutes tops. Went back to Dr. McAbee. He said, that's impossible. I said, what do you mean? He said, first of all, he noticed, and if you look at those pictures, it's right there in the negative, the orbs themselves from the first picture to the last picture moved from on the left side of those skylights to the right side. So they moved, number one. Number two, if you look at the in the distance on the skyline, the same exact phenomenon, this is where the, the data gets really, really important, is in the same exact location, disappearing at a distance. 
as two months before the mass sighting, which we'll get to, and during the mass sighting that I also captured on 35 millimeter and video. But he said, that's not the most important thing. The skyline is very different. I said, what do you mean? He said, there are many groups of lights on, and I would have never noticed this data, in the first picture that are off in the last picture. He said, that doesn't happen in a couple minutes. He said, I want you to do an experiment. He was very meticulous with this. He said, stand on the balcony, approximately where you were standing during the close sighting and take a picture of the skyline. And it's three years later, but nonetheless, one night every hour, next night every half hour. I also took it for another night every 15 minutes. And we'll see when these lights start going out. Well, the I usually take a bath when we're home between seven and eight. So let's be conservative and say eight o'clock starting point. The groups of lights started going out at nine o'clock. The last picture is indicative 10, 30, 11 o'clock. We actually did it again with better software a few years ago for National Geographic. There were more lights that were on in the first picture that were off in the last picture. He said, um, can I present this case at the upcoming MUFON, Mutual UFO Network, um, International Symposium in Washington, D.C.? I said, hey, Dr. McAbee, this is your baby. I would have never known this da data. Just keep my name out of it. And he, along with a handful of other people, were very kind to do that for seven years. He presented the case in 1999, and I never even shared it with anyone until the second edition of the book. It's in its fourth edition now in 2010 as the first, and as far as we know, the only authenticated photographic evidence of missing time. And the reason that I decided to share it was number one, our concept of time might not be what time really is. Linear time, past, present, and future may be primitive. The time is very different than what we think it is. Plus, by then, quantum physics, quantum mechanics had talked about uh, the possibility of 10 or 11 different dimensions, bubble theory and string theory. Well, if there are other times and spaces along with ours, why is it such a leap? to think that there may be other intelligences in those other times and spaces that we get glimpses of if we're open to them or invited. So I finally did share it. So that's a little tidbit for you guys and the 21 page report is on the website. Now, fast forward two years without seeing anything remotely similar to the closed orbs. And mind you, I didn't even know the faraway orbs were there. I noticed January 22nd, 1997, three huge orbs at a distance, equidistant from each other, hovering for many minutes. And I'm watching them and I'm thinking, wait a minute, they're amber, they're inner formation, even though it's a line formation, equidistant from each other, they're huge balls. And I watched each one seem to shrink like the close ones did from right to left. And I even mentioned it to my husband. He said, do, you, do I still have to go to work tomorrow? <laughs> that was his comment. And the next night, he happened to be at a medical board meeting. And I come upstairs, and from that sliding glass door that's perpendicular to the big picture window, I notice the same three lights in a row are now far south, in front of South Mountain. And I knew they were in front of the mountain because there are blinking red lights on top of the mountain to alert jets that are coming into the yeah. airport that there's a mountain there. So I said, enough, I run downstairs, grab my video camera that was fully charged, go outside, get about 18 seconds worth, and the battery went dead. Went back inside, hooked it up, went outside, they were gone, it's about eight o'clock. About 8.30, my husband comes up the drive, and I go outside, I said, honey, remember I told you about the three lights 
in a row last night that were far west. Well, about a half an hour ago, they were right in front of South Mountain. As I'm pointing like this, they reappeared in the same spot. It was like, whoa, I got to get a picture of this. And luckily, and I have to say again, don't believe in coincidence, in video, anybody that's seen the video, it doesn't do the lights justice. They're much smaller, they're white, they flicker. Nonetheless, if you really study them, the formations are very compelling, but they could be mistaken for something else. But in 35 millimeter, they're in the negative. They can't be fudged, they can't be manipulated. I run upstairs, grab my 35 millimeter, get out on the balcony, just as I'm ready to shoot the three, suddenly six lights across appear massive span over a mile wide above the three. It was so unnerving not having an explanation for 95 close sighting that I started to shake. And if you look at that picture, it's wavy because I was shaking, but I kept my wits about me. Thank goodness. Because the second picture is real to me. It's a smoking gun because what it shows are five lights that look like a V with two underneath. Well, two months later, and we're going to get to that very shortly during the mass sighting, March 13th, 1997, Thousands of people would describe what they saw as five lights in a V formation with two trailing lights. This is two months before the mass sighting. And as I continued photographing them, it seemed that whatever I was photographing head on turned into a V shape. You can see it right there. And, you know, I didn't sleep well that night, but I got up the next morning. I figured, you know what? There must be a logical explanation for this. I, I'll just search it out. And the night before, as the three were disappearing from underneath, I called the Arizona Republic and I said, you got to get somebody out there quick. There's strange lights in front of South Mountain. It's massive. Please uh, get a picture of it and tell me what it is. They were gone. So the first call I made the next morning was to the Arizona Republic. And I said, did anybody call last night to report strange lights in front of South Mountain? She gets off. She comes right back on. She said, nope, nobody called. Well, I know I called. So I said, well, I said, my husband and I did see something strange. We even got pictures of it. Who can I find out from what this might have been? She says, well, sometimes Luke Air Force Base sends experimental maneuvers out and they don't tell the public about it. I thought, hmm, that sounds reasonable. I call them, try to be very professional. My husband and I are both physicians. We live out inside in Paradise Valley. We saw some strange lights in front of South Mountain last night where the airport is. Um, do you know um, what they might have been? And from the get-go, she had an attitude and she said they didn't come into Luke Air Force Base. They didn't come out from here. So we had nothing to do with them. I said, be that as it may, we did see something strange. I did get pictures of them. Who can I contact to find out what it might have been? I'm sure it's a logical explanation. She says, well, you said it was near the airport. Maybe they saw something there. Haha. Now it was a mission, which is very not unlike me. I have to say, I call the FAA. And I got a very nice operator on the phone, told her the same thing. She says, well, you know, there was a group here last night and they did mention that they saw some strange lights. I said, oh, could you please see if you can get one of them on the phone just to confirm, again, the scientists and they confirmed that we saw the same thing. So it took forever. Finally, this guy gets on the phone, very low key, because we met him afterwards at Village Labs for a briefing. He was more excited than me. He said, did you see the six lights? Were you could touch them from each other hovering in information last night at 8.30? I said, yes, that's why I'm calling. He said, actually, there were three at 8 o'clock. I said, I saw them too. He said, when they popped up, mind you, over Class B restricted airspace, there's a 30-mile radius around the center of the airport. Anything that comes into that airspace, particularly at 1,000 feet altitude and five miles away, must call into the tower, and no one did. So they looked on radar, did not show up on radar. 
and they got nervous and then it, it disappeared. When the six popped up, it was a massive span. He said, then they really got nervous. They looked on radar, didn't show up on radar. Same spot, 100,000 feet altitude over Class B restricted airspace. And they took their high-powered binoculars to look. And in their his own words, he said there were six points of light, totally equidistant from each other, massive span over a mile wide that seemed to be attached to something. But they couldn't quite see what these lights were attached to or had a force field holding them in rock solid formation. And he was a meteorologist, luckily enough, that he said also interesting was that the entire thing turned as a unit against the wind. Very important data. Elevated slowly and moved in synchrony behind South Mountain. So I said, so what was it? And he said, beats me. I said, you're an air traffic controller. You're supposed to know it's in airspace. He was very, they were very forthcoming initially. Another guy came out to forward to that saw them both times. Um, that they ruled out every conventional, everything, aircraft, balloons, Chinese lanterns, flares, even skydivers with lights. We kept in contact up until and including March 13th, which for me was just another night. I'm going to get to that in a second. Six months before the mass sighting, I happened to be asked to, to present my substance abuse prevention education program at the Gila Bend Indian Reservation, which is in between South Mountain and the Estrella Mountain Range. There's a basin in there, very sacred ground. And this is important why I'm sharing it now, because um, this is an added little tidbit that I think is really vital to the story. Um, they don't talk to outsiders, but I help them out. And after all, I was taking all these pictures. And again, the, in science, we look for repeatability. Just look at the data. These phenomena, these UAP, keep popping up right where South Mountain and the Estrays intersect. So I called the principal and I said, did anybody see strange lights on March 13th? And he started to giggle. And I said, is that funny? He said, are you kidding? We've been looking up at them for centuries. We call them sky people, light beings. I had no idea. And uh, as, as it turned out, um, he says to me that, uh, you know, that not only have they been seeing them for centuries and looking up in the sky um, at them on March 13th, but also that's how the Estrellas got its name. It means star in Spanish, gateway to the stars. And there's petroglyphs etched out, drawings of the same exact thing that my husband and I saw on South Mountain of the three orbs in a pyramid or, or triangle formation. And they believe there's a portal or gateway in that area. I put that out there, decide for yourself. But the fact is that these phenomena keep popping up in the same location. Okay, now we fast forward. A couple of weeks before the mass sighting, it was getting ridiculous. My husband was not, uh, he was getting agitated. <laughs> Every time I saw these lights, the scientists in me felt like I had to document them on film. So I started showing the video to my friends. And this is how close I was, guys. A friend of a friend had a neighbor who had a friend who knew the past president of MUFON, Mutual UFO Network, which I had never heard of before. I called him up. I said, I'm seeing these strange lights. He didn't hear about it, but there were other people along with myself that were seeing them and documenting them in film. One even called MUFON up to their balcony the night of the mass sighting, and they caught an arrowhead of five lights. Just look at that video. It's, they're attached to something or have a force field holding them in rock solid formation. And I said, I have a picture from 95 that 
I'd like somebody of credence to take a look at. He refers me to a field investigator for the following uh, Wednesday, who calls me on Tuesday to postpone because the then state director wanted to be there and his mom had passed on Saturday. Wednesday was uh, the funeral. The only window of opportunity I had for another two, three weeks was Friday morning at 10 o'clock. He said, fine. I knock on his door. He opens the door. The first thing he says to me, did you see the mass sighting last night? And I said, well, I saw something similar to what I told you I saw two months ago. In fact, not only did I take video of it last night, but I called air traffic controllers to confirm because it looked like the same exact phenomenon, the same exact location. And they confirmed that it was, plus a couple pilots called in, a commercial airline pilot on uh, departure that said, what the hell are these lights over me? That's significant. Okay, right over the tarmac. And a uh, private pilot who he didn't say his name, but we'll get to that a little later, who came forward just a couple years ago, um, who was actually reporting the sighting while I was filming it. And he said NBC was coming to interview him in a half an hour. Well, I had done health reporting for NBC in Philadelphia in 76 and in Phoenix in the early 80s. And I said to him, look, I don't know what we're dealing with here, a hoax or military or whatever. Um, It's not about me. It's about the data. It's never been about me. It's about the data. I said, I have the video. Take a copy of the video. Um, by the time I got out there, there were six lights that popped up first, but but the f- camera wasn't focused. And then by the time I got it focused, there were three endpoints of a giant V or triangle. I said, share it with whoever you like. I'm out of here. And I left. By four o'clock that afternoon, when the first news came on, I didn't even know if they were going to cover it. Breaking news with my video on every news station. It was really exciting, actually, because having seen these things for two years and documenting on film, now people were seeing what we saw. By the nine o'clock news, there were a couple of other videos that came forward, a boomerang video and that arrowhead video, which are even more spectacular than mine. And I'm learning that, you know, thousands of people, hundreds or if not thousands of people had been outside. And here's where we get to the to the mass sighting. Do you want me to get into it? Yes. Let's go. Okay. And I apologize if I'm if I'm going fast. I know we have to squeeze a lot in an hour, um, but I want your audience to hear because the story unfolded. It's really really intriguing. But at any rate, um, while thousands of people were outside looking up purposely at the sky for a glimpse of the Halebach comet on March 13, 1997, they also caught a glimpse of mile to eight mile wide, according to Peter Davenport, director of the National UFO Reporting Center from his data that he's collected for 25 years. Either these orbs in rock solid formation, in V formation, triangle formation, boomerang formation, or actual craft. And here's where it also gets very interesting because after a 12 year study, and there's so much mis and disinformation out there, I'm so glad your, your uh, audience is, is hearing this because it's important data. Um, After a 12-year study, meticulous study of hundreds of reports, two or more people had to see the same craft to be in the study. It ended up that there were 10 different craft that were reported. Now, whether it was one craft that could morph or the perspective from where the person was standing or a parade, and that's vital information because not only were there multiple things happening, and if you go on the GAP page, GAP, Geospatial Animation Project, you'll see beautiful illustrations of all 10 craft plus animations. But the main thing is that 
There were so many things going on at the same time and not for just a couple hours. And I understand how the media just picked up on the eight to 10 period because that's when most people were outside looking up at the sky and then saw something unusual and called the news and whatever. But in reality, the mass sighting began at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, daylight sightings in Arizona. Five o'clock hour, Native Americans were seeing the same thing in New Mexico. Seven o'clock hour and beyond in California. 10 o'clock hour, there were two commercial airline pilots that called into radar to report one of these massive craft covering Las Vegas. And the reports continued and the sightings continued until 5.30 the next morning. The last report I know of personally from a Boeing crewman, the head of the unit, actually shared with me that they were coming into Sky Harbor International Airport for work at 5.30 next morning, and one of these massive craft was covering their tarmac. So we're talking about not two hours, not two events, many events over a dozen hours and over four states, Nevada, New Mexico, California, and Arizona. And even though this all happened on March 13th, at 3 a.m. that afternoon, that morning, there was a call to the National UFO Reporting Center. We have part of that recording, very professional, from an alleged crewman from Luke Air Force Base, because now we're going to get into technology here that was unbelievably absurd, who reported in great detail that jets were sent out at 8.30 p.m. that night to intercept and get gun camera film of one of these massive over-mile-wide craft hovering over central Phoenix, 7th Avenue and Indian School. As they got close and approached, the light started to dim and then the entire thing blinked out and freaked out one of the pilots who this alleged crewman said he helped out of his aircraft. Um, so there is much more to this story and we're talking a craft that disappeared. And we're talking people were right under this craft. We have an, a wonderful pilot who saw, I mean, we're talking gunmetal and windows. Some people saw beings at the windows. Some people got telepathic messages not to worry. I mean, this was a parade, a major parade. Also, if you look at that gap page, GAP on the Phoenix Lights Network website, you'll see one of the craft split in two and then shot straight up. Some people saw these orbs detach from the main object, go out into the environment, and then redock with it later. Is that what happened in 95? I don't know. But nonetheless, we have numerous people who saw this, um, as well as there was no sound, totally silent, which was very eerie to people because it was so massive. Where was the propulsion of this thing? Plus the fact that um, when some people saw it take off at blink speed, didn't even disperse the air. So we're talking technology way beyond anything that we have even seen in 25 years, okay? You would think, and who knows, you know, what's out there, but you would think if anyone had this kind of technology, especially the precarious situation we are in the world today, that they would show their prowess, right, guys? Yeah, well, show the technology anyways, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're talking incredible technology here, and yet, as the story unfolds, there was no investigation, no explanation. It was uncanny. When, when anybody officially was asked about it, they said, what, something happened on March 13th? It was just absurd. Yeah. When we're talking rooftop level, some people said they could have thrown a rock at it. It was that close. And yet there was nothing until May. Okay, and I'm just telling you the tip of the iceberg here, but it's so interesting how the story unfolded because by May, there was a councilwoman 
Phoenix Vice Mayor Frances Emma Barwood, who innocently, she didn't see it, but so many of her constituents, over a thousand constituents, contacted her and say, this went over my head. Why isn't it just a public safety issue? Why isn't there an investigation? She asked for one and was plastered by the media. I was so happy to stay anonymous for seven years because there was so much ridicule, so much snickering, so much discrediting going on. It was really scary to come forward. But she, you know, plugged away. I mean, she was unbelievable. And in her... Um, venture to to get answers for the phoenix lights and yet you know once she came forward and there were jokes in the paper about her and et cetera, et cetera, um many people stayed back okay um in fact i called her because i had seen a, a news clip of the phoenix news phoenix police department um who admitted that they had a lot of calls but in print they said they didn't get any calls i mean it was just uncanny what was happening right okay Fast forward, June 18th, 1997, suddenly there's a front page article in USA Today. For the first time, people outside of Arizona were hearing about the Phoenix Lights. And not only did it go viral, we didn't have social media then. Overnight, it went viral. By the morning, every national news uh, morning show, uh, Peter Jennings, Dan Rather, you name it, we're talking about the Phoenix Lights. And we were inundated overnight by media from all over the world. And once they started talking to the witnesses, their descriptions were so detailed and so heartfelt that they too were saying, why isn't there an investigation? Why isn't there an explanation? For the first time, later that morning, the morning after the 19th, after the USA Today article, suddenly, we get a public announcement on the news, on the radio, that then Governor Fife Symington was calling for an unscheduled press conference that afternoon to reveal the culprit of the lights over Phoenix. And people took it seriously, including myself. I was looking for any logical explanation. He comes walking out, one of his aides, with a giant head alien costume and made a mockery of the slating, which was not only very disconcerting for the witnesses that saw it up close and personal like myself, um, but particularly parents that were with children that saw something two and three moles wide and he's making a joke out of it. And he did mention that, you know, people were panicked. No, 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 this is important. There is not one, not one credible report of harm, threat or abduction associated with the Phoenix lights phenomena. Can't speak for other things. Cannot speak for other things, but can about the Phoenix Lights. And not only on March 13th, but we're talking centuries, according to the Native Americans, that these orbs have been appearing for centuries. Many of them think that they're spirit world coming to give them guidance and comfort and knowledge and inspiration. And I have certainly been inspired by them, obviously. But besides that, people were furious, but it put a lid on it for a bit. OK, but not for me. I called every military base that next month, tried to get the highest that I could in, in military. They were more interested in meeting with me and seeing what I documented on film than giving an explanation. In fact, they were just as curious. One of them even said, well, the only ones that know this are God and whoever did this. I mean, come on. <laughs> and then I get a call. 
a month later, after the USA Today article on July 24th, from one of the heads of PR at the Air National Guard, and she says, oh, Dr. Lynn, I think we know what those lights were back in March. And I was thrilled. Again, I was looking for any logical explanation. She said, do you believe that in all these months, nobody ever looked at the log for visiting Air National Guard? And the Maryland Air National Guard was in town sending off military illumination flares in Operation Snowbird, which I later found out means diversionary tactical maneuvers in military terms. So they may have been sending off flares to divert attention away from the true unknowns, but it's certainly not what thousands of people saw. Um, but she says, that must be what some people saw. So I said, well, wait a minute. When was the Maryland Air National Guard in town? She said, March She said March 1st to the 15th. I said, were they in town in January? She said, oh, no. I said, are you sure? She said, absolutely not. I said, well, my husband and I witnessed and photographed the same exact phenomenon over the same exact location two months before the mass sighting confirmed the next morning in January and the morning after the mass sighting as appearing over Class B restricted airspace at 1,000 feet altitude. And she says, you never told me that because I never told them details. I said, besides, you're trying to tell me that flares. And by then, again, I, I tried to educate myself to anything logical. Um, that are dropped from aircraft on a parachute that drift and drop in seconds haphazardly to the ground, have huge smoke trails that are illuminated by the flare itself and illuminate the area around it. That's what they're meant for, it's heat seeking. So missiles will go to them instead of the aircraft, right? I said, so you're telling me that flare, that cannot keep a formation for more than maybe a couple minutes tops, traverse the entire state in a rock solid equidistantly spaced mile wide V for hours. And she says, uh, I have a call coming in. I'll get back to you. Well, I'm still waiting, guys, for that call. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, anyway, you mentioned, yeah. that, you, you mentioned that it was against the wind as well. So if these things were dropped, they'd be going against the wind, right? And they yeah, wouldn't yeah. stay perfectly equally and they separated. Wouldn't stay they wouldn't all move in unison. They wouldn't span four states. I mean, this is the swamp gas of the Phoenix Lights, let's be honest. There you go. There you go. And three years later, to confirm that, you ready? And people don't know this happened, except locally. Francis Barwood was then running for Secretary of State to get answers for the lights over Phoenix and asking brilliantly for a reenactment. Hey, I'm open. I'm a show me person. If it was military, do it again. Right. Shame on you for denying it for months and for doing it right over people's heads. But nonetheless, if it was military, show us. Right. Right before the third anniversary, we get a public announcement that three Air National Guards were coming into town to show everyone the Phoenix lights. Now, whether they thought it would diffuse the issue or confuse the issue, it what talk about a joke. It what, was a total failure for the military. In fact, they were supposed to do a two week run and they scrapped it after that night. Because if you go to the news page on the Phoenix Lights Network website and scroll down a bit, you'll see a, a block there that says AZ Family. They got video of what they tried to do. They tried to make a triangle. It was upside down and fell apart immediately. One of them just fizzled out, actually. Um, it was a travesty for them. I mean, it really put the nail in the, in the coffin. Um, besides the fact that no one to date has described what flares do, okay, that saw the true unknowns. Mm -hmm. um, the Phoenix lights have never been recreated or explained to this day, although they continue to appear worldwide. In fact, one of the craft 
in the illustrations, if you look at it, it's like a V with every light is three lights. I found a video that a civilian took a month before our mass sighting in St. Petersburg, Russia. They had a mass sighting and air traffic controllers also reported it over their tarmac, the same exact craft. Okay, so, I mean, these are worldwide and have been hearing not only for centuries, we didn't even get into that because I had no idea that these phenomena had been uh, with us for, since human documentation began in Sumerian writings and in India writings and even in the Bible, Ezekiel's wheel. And you fast forward to the uh, 15th and 16th centuries and we have pictures of and frescoes of people looking up at the sky with what we would call a UFO with beings in the UFO. And then fast forward again, a hundred years before our mass sighting, there was another mass sighting in Kansas, California, Washington, and Canada of a massive, they called it a massive airship that had removable lights. Sound familiar? Mm -hmm. That was six years before the Wright brothers took flight. Mm -hmm. And then Foo Fighters in World War II. In fact, I conferred with Dr. Uh, Richard Haynes, who was uh, one of the heads of NARCAP that reported uh, pilot sightings. And in World War II, each side thought the other side had these advanced spy technology, these orbs, in rock-solid formations around their aircraft. It wasn't until after the war that everybody found out that nobody had this spy technology. And then you fast forward again. And in the 80s and 90s, we have Hudson Valley, um, Belgium, which is an example of what should happen. They're a model because they had the uh, scientists and university and um, uh, military and civilians get together and try to study these phenomena. That's what should happen. And of course, UK and then um, Stephenville. I mean, th these things are happening worldwide. Then we fast forward right after the 10th anniversary. And again, I'm just telling you major, major highlights here. The former governor, Vice Symington, who had mocked the sighting in 97, came forward bravely, for whatever reason, to disclose that he actually witnessed one of these mile-wide crafts. And as an awarded military pilot, it definitely wasn't players. And in his own word, and you would hear this word constantly from other countries are much more open to these phenomena as being real, he said it was otherworldly. Okay, that's a very important word. Then we fast forward again. Right after 2017, the article, big article, which I'm, I know you guys are very familiar with, the New York Times, it divulged the Harry Reid $22 million study. Um, and of course, they've been studying it for decades, but finally they admitted they were studying these UAP. Um, shortly after that, the pilot, the private pilot who had called into the airport while I was filming it, came forward too. And it was Kurt Russell, the actor. And his UK report, which is really telling, um, is on the website as well, on the news page, the Phoenix Lights Network website. So I invite people to take a peek at it. It's really cool. So, you know, the story continues to evolve. And I really appreciate, thank you for letting me share, um, you know, with your audience how the story uh, unfolded. But there is so much more to this story. And one of the things that really prompted me to come forward, I went back to work at the Arizona Heart Institute Wellness and Imaging Center as a chief clinical consultant of the heart test, the calcium in your, in your arteries. And behind closed doors, I took that 750-page journal and started editing it down to the most credible, scientific, and, and compelling data that I had found. And finally, after much soul-searching, I mean, in reality, 
how could I stick it in a drawer? <laughs> Which I really thought about doing, by the way, and showing it to my grandchildren years from now. But I had 35 millimeter that I went to extreme lengths at military and university level to have explained to me, and no one can. Plus, there was so much mis and disinformation. I mean, once the flare theory came out, people ate it up. I mean, people that were looking for a logical explanation. I get it. I get it. But there's so much more to this story. So thank you again for letting me share at least this little tidbit of it. There is much more. And again, the book, I, I squeezed down to 230 pages, the first edition, which is there. I will not do another book because I, every word is there for a reason. I keep adding chapters as the story unfolds and we're in its fourth print. Um, so, you know, I invite people to take a peek at that and, of course, explore and consider what's on the website that's packed with information. So I would ask, what what do you think was about that particular time frame, you know, 95 to 97? What caused this flap? Why were they so prevalent? Why was there so much activity? You know, do, do you have any insight on that? Okay. Um, again, these things have been appearing for centuries. Sure. Okay. And uh, there's a lot of activity. I work with Navajo Rangers now um, who were very forthcoming at one of the conferences. And I, that they had a sighting the day before ours that they thought would be a big sighting, these orbs going around in circles. And they're very open to it. The whole town came out with chairs and watched it for over an hour with their lawn chairs. Um, they're happening all over. Let's be clear about that. As far as the mass site is concerned, um, my own feeling is that whoever did this, and I don't know who did this. I don't know who they are. I just know that they are. And again, it's time we get this out in the open yeah. so yeah. we can address it and accept it and study it so we can find out who is driving these things and also move forward in our own evolution because we're right mm -hmm. in the, the precipice of like the flat earth time, okay, of going to that next step and really realizing that there is so much to the story of the Phoenix Lights, first of all, whoever did this wanted to wake us up to their presence in a very gentle, non-threatening way. My own feeling is that they've had it with the government and military. They wanted to show themselves, okay, and touch one person at a time, which they did, because we'll talk about that in a second. It touched people at a very deep, very deep, prof profound level across the board. But they also wanted to wake us up to who we are as human beings and that we have so much more potential that we're not being told as well. Um, we're, we're in our little reality box here to yeah. make this world a better world. And in my inquiries, there were a number of people, and this is an important aspect, half the book is about this, that had, had near-death experiences as children that was reawakened by the mass sighting. And I found that very profound because I did too. And I lay it all out there and there. In fact, I met three beings at eight years old in giant glowing white robes, giant beings, three of them in a row that I have felt have been with me ever since as my guides. And I meditate. I have actually 10 ways to connect with these other intelligences in the book. If people care to, it is a choice. And uh, not trying to convince anybody of anything. It's a choice of each individual how you want to take this data. But whenever I come to a crossroads, and we won't have time, but I've come to quite a few, including the Phoenix Lights, where I meditate and ask for guidance, I just get feelings, strong feelings for things. So, I, you know, again, it's not about me. I thought, whoa, could there be a connection between all unexplained phenomena, whether it's near-death experience, out-of-body experience, unexplained aerial phenomena? that have a mystical light 
associated with its experience. And lo and behold, when I started looking again, I looked for the most credible data. I found at university level, the Omega Project, it's like this thick, it's like three or four inches thick, by Dr. Kenneth Ring, Dr. John Mack at Harvard was also studying the connection and many others between all unexplained phenomena. Not only the experience, and I lay it out very simply in the book, is very similar, whatever the unexplained phenomena, it's uncanny, but the after effect, the awakening, the enlightenment, the connectedness that one feels for the first time, many people to the universe and to the earth and to each other for the very first time. I have people still telling me 25 years later that they feel blessed to have had the Phoenix Lights experience. In fact, we are now doing a scientific study because um, I thought it was really important to quantitate not only these, uh, you know, profound after effects, but even in real time, we touch on this in the, in the documentary, that um, we're so inundated with threat, 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 and harm, 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 that Dr. Gary Schwartz, the head of the Consciousness Study Department at the University of Arizona, very poignant statement, says, if you're primed to fear something, how do you think you're going to react when you see that something? Yeah. And the children who had, a lot, many of them had just seen the movie Independence Day, which was very popular at the time in 97, were jumping up and down Independence Day, Independence Day. But as it came closer, a calmness came over everyone, a connectedness to the phenomena. That after it passed, they wanted to follow it. They wanted their parents to get into the car and, and chase it. A real-time, profound, positive transformation. I started calling all up, unexplained phenomenon up, because it is so positive. Our consciousness, whoever did this, is definitely touching one person at a time and waking their consciousness up to their presence and to the positive potentials we have as human beings to make this world a better world. And the message across the board, not only with the Phoenix Lights, with many people, but also with near-death experience, is wake up to what you're doing to your planet and yourselves before it's too late. And if that's not an important message to get across, I don't know what is. No, it, even the, uh, uh, the fact that we're being not told the truth about what's really going on is a disservice to humanity because it's not telling us about the reality of the universe. If they are here, if we're again visitate, uh, visitations from some outside source or from another dimension, it doesn't matter. It's the fact of revealing that to the general public to let them know, hey, this is what reality is like and this is what's really going on. Louis, do you have any final questions for our guest today? No, I just want to extend a very warm welcome. We might have to do a 2.0 because this is such a big phenomenon and story. You can't condense it to an hour. We like to keep our episodes around an hour so you get a nice little snippet. But, um, you know, just a wealth of information, Dr. Lynn. We really appreciate you coming on the show. It's rare to have science-minded people like yourself. And, I mean, we have Avi Loeb coming on in November. So we're really making an effort to get science-minded people um, and not just people that think they know, but people that are humble enough to say, I don't have a frigging clue, but I know I want to find out and I want to help other people get there and bring that attention to this. Because a lot of people that reach out to us, we get a lot of emails, people share their experience. We've had people say, hey, I've never told anybody this. I'm embarrassed. And at least I know you guys are open minded. It's cathartic for them just to get it off their chest. So if we you know, play a, a very small role in this whole thing, 
then that's good enough for us. And uh, you are not only experiencer, but you've helped other people deal with theirs. And uh, yeah, it's been a great show. We're really uh, impressed by your your knowledge and we'd love to have you back on again sometime. Absolutely. And I, there is so much more in the book, I have to tell you, if people care to, to take a look at it, because there were uh, talk about coincidences and paranormal activity after the mass sighting. That's like, whoa. Um, and even automatic writing and all kinds of uh, neat things. But I, you hit on something that's the most important reason I came forward was to, to let people know it's okay to talk about this. It's time. We need to talk about this. And it's wonderful that now the military and government are coming forward, um, at least to let us know that there is something in our airspace, something visiting us. It's something that might have been here. I mean, look, 70% of the earth is, is ocean. They could have been down at the bottom of the ocean we, that we can't reach for millennia. And, and who knows what they are, like you mentioned, whether they're interstellar, interstellar, time travelers, interdimensional, okay, that we get glimpses of if we're open to them or invited. Um, it's, it's still a question that we need to study and we need to discover. And I, I so uh, appreciate you letting me share this data. And I hope people will look further um, into the Phoenix Lights and go to the website. It's packed with, with information. Actually, the, the, um, our award-winning documentary, we're so proud of it. It's a real grassroots effort. Um, is now free on Tubi, if anybody has Tubi. And also Amazon Prime, uh, I believe it's still free on there too. Um, I just want to get the information out there so people can learn and grow and decide for themselves how they want to accept this information or not. Um, but it's out there now. So thank you for letting me share it. Awesome. Dr. Kitai, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And keep looking up. You know now it's a double entendre. <laughs>